ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You don't need the lyrics and you don't need to worry about being in tune. Recognise this voice? It's Seth Godin, well known for his marketing and leadership books and blog. He's a legend and a rascal, and he always offers useful provocation from our daily slumber. His latest book, The Song of Significance, is a manifesto for teams and how we lead. But first, why is a book about work called The Song of Significance? And no, you don't need to sing karaoke. So the cover of your book is so striking. It's a simple design. It's got space and a beautiful illustration of a bee in the centre. And in a way, it asks me a question. Uh, the question is, why the bee? <laughs> exactly. Why the bee? You know, in its lifetime, each bee only produces a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. And bees live in colonies. There is no individual bee. There is simply the colony of bees. And I became obsessed with bees about six months ago and have been studying them ever since. And we have so much to learn from them. The song of increase is the sound a hive makes when it boldly leaps into an unknown future, leaving behind all the babies, all the honey, the existing hive. And then they land in a tree 100 meters away. And they form a tight ball. And they only have 72 hours to find a new place to live. If there's a thunderstorm, they're all going to die. And in that 72 hours, in that tight ball, they're singing not the song of increase, but the song of safety. They're avoiding any risk. And as I heard these stories, I realized that human beings have been singing the song of safety for too long. And that what we yearn for is the song of significance, of dignity, of contribution, of being part of something. And what you might have seen on the back cover of the book, no blurbs, no more copy. It just says, the purpose of a hive isn't to produce as much honey as possible. In fact, honey is the byproduct of a successful hive. That what we have is a life. And that life can produce productive outputs. That life can add to some organization's profit. But that's not why we're here. The purpose of culture isn't to support capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to support our lives and our culture. That's so profound. And the other part that you share is nobody reads the blurbs in the back anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the heart of it, and this is the part I just absolutely connect with, is the idea that you put so well. We need to make a living, but how do we make a life? What did you discover through writing this book? We need to have a job but you don't need to work here. You don't need to work on this. You could walk down the street and work somewhere else. You are giving something up to have this job. You could work for some evil investment bank and make more money. You could work at a place that's sleepy and not work so hard. You gave something up to be here, which means that this work is voluntary, that at some level you have a choice, that you can enroll in this journey or not. But we've been indoctrinated in so many things. And one of them is, nope, got to go to work. And this is the work I have. And, but the other part, now the empathy part is I polled 10,000 people in 90 countries. And my research showed some really interesting things. I gave them 14 choices. And I said, which of these things 
were present at the best job you ever had. And what I learned is that everyone has the best job they ever had. Everyone can answer that question the same way they can talk about their first date. And so I gave them 14 choices, three of which are the kind that bosses would guess is the answer. I got paid a lot. I didn't get fired. I got to tell people what to do. Because if you try to quit your job or take another job, those are the three things bosses parade out to get you to stay, right? And then I gave some other choices, like I accomplished more than I thought I could. I worked with people who treated me with respect. I was proud of the work I did. Well, what I can tell you is regardless of country, the same answers came up over and over again. And at the bottom of the list of the best job I ever had was I made a lot of money and I got to tell people what to do. That's not what humans want. And we have to get paid enough money. But what we really want is to be treated with respect, to do more than we thought we could, to challenge ourselves and to connect with our work and with our peers. And so my question is, if you're going to spend 90,000 hours at work, why don't you do those things? Why don't we? Industrialists don't want us to. So what's industrialism? Uh, Frederick Taylor met Henry Ford about 1915, and he had a stopwatch, and Henry Ford had a bunch of machines. And together, they figured out that humans were a resource, that if they treated humans like a machine, timing them, tracking them, jerking them around, that's where the expression jerking you around came from, uh, they could make their profits go up. And so work started to shift. It started to shift where we sucked the humanity out of it and tried to make it into a repetitive, brain-dead, irresponsible process, a race to the bottom. And what I'm seeing right now in 2023 is that brutality is catching up with us. They came for the ditch diggers with the steam shovel and we didn't say anything, but now it's coming for us. And people are feeling it. They are feeling, particularly with distributed work, like they're under surveillance in all these Zoom meetings. They're feeling like they don't really matter and are soon to be replaced by AI or a robot. Well, you're right. The people are like cogs in the machine at work. We are the cogs. If we want to be. And the reason that we want to be is that's what school taught us. That when we ask, will this be on the test? We've made it very clear. We don't care if we're learning anything. We just want to make sure we get an A. So I do want to, I mean, there's a great compassionate challenge that you make in your manifesto, and I think this will be profound for the workplace, and that is that there is a big difference between a manager and a leader. So leaders looking for Mozart, not Muzak. Tell us about why you decided to make this distinction and why it's so important. So a manager is on the hierarchy. They use power and authority to get what they got yesterday, but faster and cheaper. And we need them. Qantas couldn't run without managers, and neither could a fast food place. You need people to show up for their shift. You need to measure the Six Sigma. You need the pilot to not invent new ways to fly the plane. Read the manual. If we're doing a repetitive, proven task, there's going to be managers. But managers aren't leaders. They could be if they wanted to, but they don't often show up that way. And leaders don't have to be managers because leadership is voluntary. Leadership says, I'm going over there. Who wants to come? Leadership says, this might not work. Leadership lives in the liminal space between here and there. 
And so if you're in a solid state organization that's never going to change, just hire managers. But if you're dealing with a a world that's changing, and I got to believe that's most of us, we need some leaders and leadership is a choice. And so if you are a hidebound manager at a fast food place, your turnover will be very high Mm. because no one who works for you will care and they will leave the first chance they get. But if you manage and lead as that shift manager, you will see your employees, you will challenge your employees, you will connect with your employees, and they will choose to voluntarily bring something else to work that is beyond the requirements because they want to, not because they have to. So how can leaders truly become the leaders that we need? So there's an expression I took from a, a book that's not about this called Let's get real or let's not play. And what it says is that we need enrollment from all sides. That if we're going to do this difficult, important work and give up a day of our life to do it together tomorrow, let's get real or let's not play. So if the goal of this rugby team is to win the whole tournament, then everyone is signed up. No Mm. one needs to be blowing whistles and yelling and belittling people because we all signed up for that. Whispering would be sufficient. But most of the time, it's not a tournament and it's not based on scarcity. It's based on possibility. So let's get real. What change are we actually seeking to make, boss? Let's have a deal. If you promise not to waste my time in a Zoom call where you're prattling on when you could have sent a memo instead, I promise to show up and pay attention. But the other half of the deal is, if you are prattling, I'm just going to leave, and you'll be fine with that. Let's get real about what we're here to do, or let's not play. Your power is assured, but your influence, that is going to happen when you earn it. Now, you've got this great matrix. We love our two grids. So can you talk us through (laughs) high stakes and trust for people who want something practical? So we've got, do you want to describe your two-by-two grid? I love two-by-two grids (laughs) as much as you, Lisa. (laughs) So in the two-by-two grid, the question is, how much trust is there and how high are the stakes? So in the case of you're flying on Qantas to New Zealand, the stakes are really high right? Because if something messes up, you're in the ocean. And the trust is pretty low because you've never met this pilot before. You have no idea who's working in air traffic control today. So since we have low trust and high stakes, surveillance is the only option. Measure everything, command everything. At the other extreme, where the stakes are low and trust is high, we have the local barista where you go passing three Starbucks to get your flat white. And why did you pass other places to go there? Well, because the person behind the counter greets you with a special kind of smile. And you don't want to watch over their shoulder to make sure they're using a thermometer to make sure it's at 97 degrees Celsius or whatever it is. You want to trust them. That's part of the joy of it. And then you can imagine the other two quadrants. And what I'm trying to get at is significance lies in trust. And if you want to move your way up to high stakes, like being a heart surgeon or being a a radio personality who has the freedom to change what they are going to say on air, you can do that. But you need to pick industries and jobs where surveillance isn't the key. 
On the other hand, if you want to be off the hook and a cog in the system, go work in an Amazon warehouse because you don't have to make any decisions whatsoever. And what is how would how would we use this? Is it seriously to frame our existence today, or is it to somehow help us find that or navigate ourselves through work, Seth? Okay, so have you ever had Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Yes, I have. Do you like the brownie flavor? I prefer that one. Okay. Yes. So the brownies you had were made three miles from my home. Oh, really? They were made in the Grayston Bakery. The Grayston Bakery has only two branches, one in the Netherlands and one here. They make all the brownies for Ben and Jerry's. The stakes of brownie production are sort of high in the sense that we don't want to poison anybody. But what you need to do to make a better than good enough brownie is well understood. So what proxies should we use? How should we hire the people who work at the Grayson Bakery? Well, the Grayson Bakery is a branch of a spiritual institution started by Bernie Glassman, and they pioneered open hiring. And what they do is there's a clipboard at the front desk. And then you go in and you put in your phone number and your name, and you leave. And it doesn't matter whether you're previously incarcerated, whether you used to have a drug problem, whether you're currently homeless. When a job opens, the next person on the list gets the job. And then there's three weeks of training. And if you can't handle the training, we're not lowering our standards. You can't work here. And then you have a job and it changes lives. So Body Shop during the pandemic was having a lot of trouble keeping people in their retail establishments. So they adopted open hiring against a lot of resistance. Mm. And it turns out that retention went up 60% and productivity went up 15%. Because when you say to people, within the boundaries of what we need to deliver, we trust you. We don't have to surveil you. You don't have to look like us. Here, go make it happen. Magical things happen. Mm -hmm. But here's the big question, Lisa. The big question is, even after hearing of the effectiveness of open hiring, almost no companies with reasonably skilled jobs adopt it. Mm. And that's because the ego of the hiring manager gets in the way. Because our need for control and surveillance gets in the way. Because we want to be surrounded by people who we picked, who look like us or act like us or have similar backgrounds to us. And I bring up the Grayston story because it highlights what we're getting at here, which is if you are in a situation where the stakes aren't as high as you might think, and their surveillance is really high, for example, high school, you need to stop trying so hard to be an industrialist. And you need to realize that humanity can get us out of a lot of jams. What happens when we choose surveillance and control rather than trust? So AI shows up and New York City high schools have banned it and said every kid will cheat on their essays because they'll just have the computer write their mediocre essays. And I'm like, damn straight they will because they're not idiots and we don't have a <laughs> mediocre essay shortage. We will never again have a shortage of mediocre essays. You got hooked on surveilling the behavior, the proxy of did this person learn something from reading Animal Farm? or 1984, but that's not an accurate way to tell if they read it. Mm. What we need to do is get the kids together in class and have them 
train the AI to write ever better essays that demonstrate that they understand the point of why we had them read the book in the first place. That when they teach it to each other, when they talk about it, when we are present in real life, building insight, we'll learn from each other. But the old regime of how do I control a 15-year-old and make sure they're sitting at their computer for half an hour to type a boring essay about something they didn't really understand? You just got called on that. That's not going to work anymore. It's not sounding too dissimilar from workplaces where boring reports are created, mediocre ones at at best. So what what is your challenge there for how this also plays out in the workplace, Seth? So if we're going to get rid of false proxies, we got to be really clear about the change we seek to make. And, you know, I I did an interview in studio for a big company a little while ago, and there were probably nine people in the studio all working on it. And I am here by myself. My interviews reach more people on my platform than reach there. So what metric are we using? Because everyone there was doing a fine job following the manual of what they were supposed to do. But what's it for? Who's it for? What is the change we seek to make? And if we don't know that, then of course we have to ask the committee for permission to do anything. (laughs) But if we said, wait a second, at the end of every interview, we're going to read how many comments came in and how deep the comments were. Your job is to make that number go up. Well, suddenly we don't need nine people in the studio because those three people, they weren't making that number go up. They were just doing their job. And that doesn't mean we should cost reduce every process, but it means we should measure the right things and not use surveillance just because it's easy. How would you give the worker agency in this? The key, if you are a worker, and I think everyone listening probably is, is to not ask for authority because you're probably not going to get it. Instead, take responsibility and give away credit. If you do those two things, take responsibility and give away credit when it works, they'll ask you to do it again. And I accidentally backed into that when I was 23 years old in my first job, over and over again. This isn't about asking for forgiveness later. This is instead about saying, I'm going to make a small promise, the smallest useful promise. I'm going to go do a thing that has never been done before. If it works, I'm going to thank my boss and let them take a bow. And if it fails, I'm going to explain to everybody what I learned so we can get better together next time. This idea of criticizing the work, never the worker, opens the door for the thrill that we're all looking for at work. I love this concept of promises. Can you share the story of the company that is 100% remote and really operates on promises? Okay, so if you are using the internet, I guess you are, you are using products made by Automatic. 40% of the entire internet is powered by WordPress. Automatic has more than 2,000 employees. They don't have an office. They don't have meetings and they don't use email. What? Everything (laughs) is distributed and has been distributed since before the pandemic. And Matt, who runs it, a friend of mine, great guy, engages with people in a reading and writing culture. It shouldn't surprise you that the whole thing is run on internal WordPress blogs. So there's a long thread about some project that needs to be done. How are we going to add AI to certain blogs? A programmer says, I could imagine doing this. And a boss writes back, 
in a, a public thread. That would be fantastic. When do you think that can happen? I will need help from these three people. Okay, let's go. And it unfolds. So if you join Automatic, you can read back through all the threads. There isn't some sort of clever inside language. It's all there, reading and writing, promises and promises kept. And if you don't keep a promise, but there's a good reason, you get to make another one. And if you're just sitting there waiting for someone to tell you what to do, you're probably working at the wrong company. Is it a company that operates without a hierarchy or is there still a a hierarchy in there? Holacracy, the idea that everybody is in the room and everyone is parallel and equal, doesn't lend itself to the coordination that the firm requires. That what useful hierarchies do is they stack the promises. So what happens is if you promise your boss something, your boss collects five other promises, bundles them up, and then promises their boss something. And that is the only way that I know of to have useful strategy going forward. So in the orchestra, it's pretty flat. There's the conductor, then there's the choir, the concertmaster, and a few other people, and then there's the performers, the players. And each player says, I see what Beethoven wrote here. I see you up there. I promise to play this version of Beethoven on my oboe the way we agreed. And then the conductor's job is to bundle all that up and bring it to the impresario and the audience. But you could imagine a layer below that, which is that that musician needs to say to the oboe reed technician, I'm going to need new reeds by Thursday because they're counting on me. So yeah, there's still a hierarchy. And what's really interesting, I learned this from my friend who plays a Baroque viola is that uh, even within the orchestra, you do have the conductor, but within each part, they have a leader who effectively is your leader manager. And that is an example of where they absolutely rely on the hierarchy and it keeps them safe. So it's something that empowers each person because they know exactly what their role is. And I actually found that really fascinating when that was shared with me. Right. So let's go back to the bees for one second. The bees are organized without an organizer and led without a leader. The queen, her only job is to lay eggs. She's not in charge of that. There is a council of maidens, which are the most senior, strongest bees that some people call workers. And they send a signal. And that signal gets incorporated, which then reaches other people. When the bees sing their song of increase and then have to find a new home, they send out 150 scout bees to cover 30 square miles to figure out where to live next. And each bee comes back and does a dance for many of the bees. And the dance is fascinating. Yeah, it's the wiggle, isn't it? The wiggle, it shows within 10 meters with a compass direction exactly which home they were thinking of. But then Thomas Seeley has written and proven in a beautiful scientific method, they unanimously decide where to go. And this idea that a hive of bees can have a consensus is thrilling, given that we live in a world where we are amplifying division. And so what most of this comes down to is goodwill. It comes down to the benefit of the doubt. It comes down to trust. And you get those things not with surveillance, but with trust. And finally, Let's return to that song of significance and what it can teach us about the future of our working lives. What we know is that we don't sing because we're happy. We're happy because we sing. That what makes somebody a human is that they are willing to bring their humanity to others. And so what I've done 
in the book is included almost 150 questions that we can ask ourselves. What I've included is basically a manifesto that says you don't get tomorrow over again. And it's up to us to decide to contribute something. Not because the boss told us to, not because someone's going to take something from us if we don't, but because we can, because that's what humans are born to do. Thank you to my guest, Seth Godin, author and marketing expert. Thanks to sound engineer, Tim James, and to This Working Life producers, Zoe Ferguson and Rachel Bongiorno. I'm Lisa Leong. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Next week, we speak with author Maura Ahrens Mealy about her book, The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower. Until then, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.